Open your Bibles this morning to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 5. Last week we started to look at this very encouraging passage uh, about God's amazing love. And the topic is part of a new section that Paul began in Romans chapter 5, and it will stretch all the way through Romans chapter 8. And, And this entire section begins with the words... Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have. And with those words, Paul then launches into a list of all the different things that that we have. And and his purpose in describing these these justified blessings is is to build our assurance. God wants those who have placed their faith in Christ to know that they're completely secure in, in him. And so topic after he after topic he he explains that assurance, the ground of that assurance, the basis of that assurance. Just as you shouldn't kid yourself if you think you're okay with God and you're not, which is the purpose of Romans chapter one through through three. God also though wants you to be equally sure if you have been justified that you'll you'll stay that way. And understanding that the love of God will surely do that for you, which is why Paul takes up this large section of the introduction of chapter 5 speaking about the, the love of God. Frankly, it would be hard to find a more inexplicable and inspiring topic than God's love. I mean, the love of God is, is the most substantial thought that we, we could consider. We throw the term around, we talk about it, it it's very regularly the verse that we know, John three sixteen. We, we sing about God's love, and yet we saw last time that, that it's not something that, that we naturally comprehend. In fact, when we think about the love of God, our minds unsurprisingly go to forms of human love because that's what we, that's what we see, that's what we grasp, because we, we don't have anything like God's love to compare it to. God's love is, is unique. There's, there's nothing on earth to depict it which is why Paul is writing these verses so we can understand the love of, the love of God, the love that God has for, for mankind. In, in the love that, that we know and the love that we experience regularly, we, we base that love or that love is rooted in the, in the nature of a person or, or the object. And then we evaluate whether the, the, that object is worth our affection or worth sacrifice. And we do that in every area of life without, without even thinking about it. I mean, in dating, we say, does this person have the it factor? Uh, meaning, am I attracted to them or, or, or not? And in marriage, we, we expect love in return for, for the love that, that, that we give. I mean, even when we misuse the term, when we say something like, I love pizza or I love the mountains, we're we're saying that there's something about this food, there's something about the mountains that, that's appealing to me. Therefore, I, I love it for, for this reason. But all of those examples, and any other example that, that you can think of, those examples are unlike God's love. God's love is extraordinarily unique, and you have to intentionally think about it. You have to train your mind to, to think biblically about it because what comes natural is a human kind of love. Or, or as I said, to say it another way, it's, it, it doesn't come natural to us, which is what Paul's doing here. Paul, in Romans 5, is making us intentionally 
Look at God's love. So we can see that it's different. And when we see that it's different, he understands that, that we'll, we'll have no concerns or questions about our assurance. In fact, understanding the love of God is vital for, for grasping salvation. I mean, if you don't understand God's love, then you'll, then you'll not understand salvation. You'll think that God expresses His love toward you on, on a merit basis, or meaning that, that He loves you because there's something in you that draws His love. But, but that is the opposite of what this passage says and what the Bible says. Paul says that if God's love was based on attraction, we would repel Him. We, we wouldn't draw Him because we're helpless and ungodly and sinners and, and, and enemies. I mean, of course, it's true that all people are, are creations of, of God. We bear His image in some way. But ever since the fall, we also bear the image of sinful Adam who followed the, the, the devil. And that corrupt nature attracts God's wrath. God's wrath uh, abides upon us, not His love. God expresses His love wholly on His own merits. It's a sovereign love. It's, it's based on His character to express it, which, which also means He is not unjust in any way if, if He doesn't express it, because no one deserves it. And yet in Romans chapter 5, verse 5, Paul has just told us that love has drenched our hearts in, through the Holy Spirit, through the, the work of Christ. You're secure because the love of God was poured out in you at the beginning of conversion and remains during uh, our entire Christian lives. Look, if you would, at Romans 5, 5. And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts. There's our theme, the love of God. It's been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. When was He given to us? He was given at the, at the moment of regeneration when we placed faith in Christ. And he goes on, while we were still helpless. Let me explain that love to you. While we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare die. Here's human love. But verse 8, back to God's love. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What is this love? How would you define it? Is it like human love? I mean, is there anything on earth that we can compare it to? Well, well Paul is teaching us the nature of God's love in verses 6 through 11. And again, it's to build our assurance because he knows once you truly consider the nature of God's love, it'll be impossible for you to doubt. So in verses 6 through 8, he does an exposition of the love of God, what it's like, how it's expressed, how, how it's compared to other kinds of love that, that we know. And then in verses 9 through 11, we get the results. So uh, verses 6 through 8, an, ex, an explanation of the love of God that's in our hearts, support out from the Holy Spirit, through the Holy Spirit. And then verses 9 through 11, the result of that, that love, which we'll get to it at some point. Or as we said last time, Three explanations of the nature of God's love. Verse 6, it's expressed toward the undeserving. Verse 7, it's extraordinarily unlike human love. That's where we'll pick up today. And it's emphatically demonstrated by the cross. That's where we'll finish today. Toward the undeserving, unlike human love, and demonstrated 
by the, by the cross. And just by way of review, last time we said that the love of God is expressed toward undeserving people. We saw it's a gracious love. It's a timely love. It's a vicarious love and a Trinitarian love. Look, if you would, at verse 6. It says, for a while we were still helpless at the right time. Christ died for the ungodly. And the little word for tells us this is an explanation of what he just got done saying. So Paul emphasizes the unique nature of God's love. He describes God's love to us. By, by focusing on the object that he loves. They're the objects. Not good people, not worthy people, but weak, ungodly, and sinful people. God has love for people that are his enemies. It's a gracious love. And, and he showed us it was gracious by using these four terms. And the, the first one is, is, is helpless, weak and helpless. At the, while we were still helpless, it's somebody who has a total incapacity for, for good. They're incapable of of good. This goes beyond human depravity. It describes human inability. God doesn't love people who just need a little nudge. God expresses His love toward morally pathetic people, unable to change themselves. He describes the objects as ungodly, the second term, or godless. Uh, It just means somebody who's unlike God. Mankind is without God, or he's godless, and yet God loves them still. The third term used in verse 8. While we were yet sinners, a sinner is an offender, someone who's missed the mark. They're they're not good. They're not righteous. God expresses His love toward divine criminals, people who are disinterested in God's ways. And just to make sure you're tracking along, He's not talking about somebody else. He's talking about you. And the fourth phrase in verse 10, while we were enemies... That's someone who's on the opposite side in a war, uh, an adversary, somebody on Satan's side. God expresses his love toward us or toward those who are incapable, godless, sinful enemies. This is the kind of people that Christ died for. That's that's what his love is like. It's a gracious love, and it has nothing to do with you, which is Paul's point here. I mean, God's love is not attracted to anything in you. If it was, you wouldn't be loved by God at all. And it's also a timely love. For while we were still helpless, at the right time, verse 6 says, Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus Christ came into the world at God's perfect timing in history. What makes it the right moment? It's when we were without strength. It's when mankind had proven that there was no way that he could save himself, no way to keep the law, none righteous. There's no answer for sin. That is, until the right time when Jesus came which means that God's love for you was not an afterthought. It wasn't a reaction. It it means that it was planned in every detail, even down to the very moment when Christ would come and offer himself as 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 a ransom. It was a love expressed on on your behalf. Christ died for us, a substitutionary love. And the whole Trinity expressed it. Verse 5 says, The Holy Spirit poured that out in our hearts, poured this love out in our hearts, and God is mentioned in verse 8 as the one expressing His love toward us. And then Christ, of course, is the one dying as an expression of that love in verse 6. So all three members of the Godhead are, are part of this, this amazing love. But Paul's not done. He gives us a second ex, uh, description in verse 7. The second description of the love of God is it's extraordinarily unlike Human love. Look, if you would, at verse 7. 
He says, For one will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man someone would dare even to die. So notice again, Paul, Paul starts with the word for. And the one here is, is a human being. For one human being will hardly die for a, a righteous man, another righteous human being. Though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. So he's explaining what he just got done saying in verse 6 about God's love. He's comparing God's love to human love. He, he spends an entire verse doing that, contrasting two extreme forms of human love with the divine love that he just described in, in verse 6. Whereas verse 6 helps us understand the nature of God's love by describing the objects of His love, which are unworthy, well, that helps us understand God's love. It's very different from human love because look who God loves. Look at who we are. Well, verse 7 is highlighting the nature of God's love by comparing it to the highest form of human love that we have on the earth. I mean, we can't naturally comprehend God's love because we have nothing to compare to it. But So Paul compares it to the kind of love that we do know, that we do understand. And he says God's love is extraordinary, unlike even the, the highest expressions of love that we experience. And he describes these human mountain peaks of affection in, in two forms. He says there's a, a dedicated death, like for a righteous cause, and then there's a devoted death, like, like for a cherished relationship, the, the good one or the good person. And both fall very short of even the basement level of, of God's love. Now, if you happen to go to a commentary or maybe even in the study notes of your Bible, there's a lot of different ways people try to relate the righteous one or righteousness and the good one in, in, in verse 7. They try to, try to figure out how that, the Greek goes together. Some people say good and righteous are synonyms, speaking of the, the same person. Others say the word good interprets righteous. Some that talk about the neuter that's, that's in the Greek. But, but I really don't think it's that complicated. And, and just as a side note, when you run across a verse like this where you have people that are trying to, to figure out how to put the pieces together, don't let your attempt to figure out the Greek uh, cause you to miss the point. The point is God is simply giving a comparison of His love to human love. Amen. And I just think that they build on each other here. Paul says there are some, there are some human beings who will die for a righteous cause, a righteous person, someone who dutifully or obediently keeps some righteous standard like the law or, or dying for an honor code, like, like dying for your country. There, will be, there are people who will, will do that. That's one level of human love. That's, a, that's, a, that's a, an honorable type of love, an extreme case of human love. And then he says there's even an even higher form of human love. Some will lay down their, their lives for a person that they view as good in their eyes, like someone dear to you. So there's a dedicated death, a dedicated death toward a cause, and there's a devoted death toward, toward a person. When I thought of the, the first type of, of human love here, this first example, uh, my mind went to the famous rabbi Akiva, that Boaz always likes to tell about every time we go to, to Caesarea, who died at the hands of the, uh, of the Romans because he refused to break Jewish law during the, the, bar, uh, the bar Kokhba revolt in 132 to 136 A.D. Rabbi Akiva was executed because he refused to stop teaching the, the Torah. 
You remember Jesus' prophecy uh, about the temple being destroyed? Well, that the temple's destruction that happened in 70 A.D. Uh, began with a Jewish revolt in 66 A.D. And that revolt was brought to an end. It involved the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. It was brought to, a, to an end at the siege of Masada in 74 A.D. And, and after that, the Romans went to, to remove all Jewish presence from the land of, of Israel. You may not know this, but that's actually where the term Palestine comes from. The Palestinians are not an original people group. They, they don't have a specific land. I mean, that, that term, Palestine, is, is what Hadrian renamed the land of the Jews, the land of Judea. He named it the, the land of uh, Philistia, or the, the land of the, the Philistines, which is where the word Palestine comes from. And he did that in order to wipe out Jewish, Jewish nationalism. And he also leveled the Jewish temple and erected a temple to Zeus in its place. And he forbade any Jew from even entering Jerusalem. And he declared it uh, Juden reign, meaning Jew-free, which was a term that the Nazis actually picked up from Hadrian. And they borrowed much, much later. They wanted a Jew-free country and, and land and world, which led to the Holocaust. Hadrian, the Romans outlawed circumcision and the Sabbath and the teaching of the Torah, and Rabbi Akiva refused to obey those those decrees. And he was arrested and he was condemned and he was put to death in the Hippodrome in Caesarea. And the ruins are still there today. In just about three weeks, whenever we go as a church, we'll stand in the very place that this, this event took place that I'm telling you about right now. And historians said about his public execution, even as they tortured him to death, he recited the final words of a Jew, the Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. And his students who stood nearby as the Romans were flaying his flesh with iron combs, they asked, even now, are you still thinking about your obligation to God, even at this horrific, tragic moment? And Akiva said to them, All my life, I waited for the opportunity to show how much I love God. And now that I have the opportunity, should I waste it? And then he died with the word one on his lips, the Talmud says. That's a dedicated death. That's a death for a righteous cause. And Akiva said, I would rather die than violate the Jewish law. Not everyone would do that, which is why he's remembered for that dedicated death. And, but we can understand a death like that. I mean, we may not be able to do it ourselves. We may be thinking, wow, what would I do in that situation? But, but we see purpose in his death. I mean, it's a noble thing not to give up your convictions, e- even in the face of execution. It's courageous. It's, it's noble. And Paul says God's love is not like that. It's greater still. He's not looking to see if we will find our opportunity in life to show him how much we love him. He he loves us while we were God deniers. What Paul says about God's love in verse 6 is breathtaking. I mean, even from a Jewish context. I mean, Jewish tradition doesn't even describe God's love the way that Paul does does here. I mean, Jewish tradition says that one might die out of loyalty to the law in 2 Maccabees uh, chapter 7, like Akiva. Or like in John 18, 14, where one would die on behalf of a nation. But Paul says God died for the ungodly, for those 
those whose wickedness attracts his wrath. That was unthinkable to a Jew. I mean, listen to the Old Testament Proverbs in, in Ecclesiasticus chapter 12. This is how the Jews viewed sin and, and, and God's love. Chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Give to the devout, but do not help the sinner. Do good to the humble, but do not give to the ungodly. Hold back their bread and do not give it to them. For by means of it, they might subdue you. Then you will receive twice as much evil for all the good that you have done to them. For the Most High also hates sinners and will inflict punishment on the ungodly. Give to the one who is good, but do not help the sinner. It's a Jewish perspective. Even worldly philosophers would agree with this. One commentator said, Seneca, as a philosopher, advised giving help only to those who deserve it. And there's part truth to that. I mean, from a human standpoint, you just give handouts to somebody who doesn't deserve it. Or, or Aristotle said, do good for one's friends, but not the enemy. That's human love. But that's not God's love. Paul says God's love runs counter to what seems logical toward us. God expressed His love toward the ungodly. He died for the unrighteous, not the righteous, like, like Akiva. But he gives even a higher example. Look if you would at verse 7. For one, a human being will hardly die for a, for a righteous man or a righteous cause, though perhaps, here's the second one, for the good man someone would, would dare even to die. So Paul says there are a few people who will die for, for a righteous cause, and even fewer still who, who will die for an individual. This is a devoted death, the the good man, there's a definite article there which indicates a particular person of worth, the good man. So, so this second example of, of high human love, Paul moves from, the, from a, a righteous conviction or a cause, a, a, a dying for a law keeper to a person. And there's something in that person that's good, that's, that's worthy. It's not dying for being morally upright, but dying for a close personal relationship, if you will. Someone that you would deem as a worthy person, like a military brother, or a husband for a wife, or a, a mother for a child. I mean, the military man says, no brother is left behind. That's brotherhood. You might die for your nation. That's a righteous cause. And then you also would die for a comrade. It's what my friend would do for me, and I for him. That's an honorable kind of love. It's a courageous kind of love. I mean, we make movies about that kind of devotion, don't we? I mean, Top Gun, Maverick flies in, into, the, into the front of Rooster's plane when his flares are out and he gets blown out of the sky. And we, we marvel at that sacrifice. I mean, that's sort of the climax of the movie. And, and we're moved even more when Rooster returns the favor and comes back for, for Maverick. I mean, that's an honorable kind of human love. Or the husband that, that says, that's my wife, when the storm surge comes in from the hurricane and, and there's one life preserver and he places it on her and, and he himself is swept away by, by the flood. That husband says, my love moves me to sacrifice for her because she's, she's my wife. She's the good woman, the good woman to me. and I'm devoted to her and that's honorable. Or a mother who's diagnosed with cancer while she has a baby in her womb and she forgoes the chemotherapy until the baby's born 
risking her own life to save the child. That's a, that's a devoted kind of human love. That, that's moving. That's not just for a righteousness or righteous cause, but, but that's for something that's special to us. And not everyone will do those things. But Paul says some will. And that kind of human love is exalted, and, and rightly so. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying, think of the highest form of human love that you can grasp, and God's love is inexplicably higher still. Because in all of those scenarios that I just described, there's something in the cause, like, like with Akiva or the, the military brother or, or the other person, which is the basis of the love, like in those relationships. The Marine dies for his brother, the husband lays down his life for his wife, the mother sacrifices herself for her own flesh and blood, but... But God commends His own love toward us while we had no cause worth saving, (laughs) no good in the man or the woman. We weren't reciting the Shema when God died for us. We were blaspheming His name. (laughs) Our lips used His name as a curse word. We weren't God's brother or children. We were his enemies. We were children of the devil, and God expresses his love toward us while we were cold and uncaring, and we were rebelling and hating him. And that's the difference between human love and divine love. God loves his enemies. And you say, I know that, but but I don't understand that. It's not just a sentimental kind of love either. I and mean, lower he like he's up in heaven expressing warm feelings toward those that hate him on the earth. Like, oh, it's I feel so bad for those who aren't able to experience me. And I, I love them, even though that they're, they're cursing me down there. No, God's love moves him to go into the battlefield and, and rescue an enemy combatant while, while he's being shot at and, and being wounded in the process. I mean, God doesn't, his love doesn't die for his faithful wife. He seeks out his former wife who left him and is now living as a prostitute in Hosea. Because she enjoys that life and he woos her back to his home and faithfully loves her. And God dies in his adversary's place. I mean, that's inexplicable love, isn't it? I mean, Paul's point in verse 7 is that God's love is without human analogy. I mean, you can't think of a human situation to compare it to, no matter how high up on the chart you go. I mean, it makes no sense to us whatsoever based on anything that you've ever seen and everything that seems logical to you. God's love goes toward the sinner. And His love is so powerful that it actually changes them. I mean, this is one of the hardest lessons for the disciples and everyone around Christ in the the Gospels to comprehend. The the love of God, the difference between divine love and, and human love. It's one of the primary themes in the Gospels that Jesus uses to teach over and over and over. I mean, He starts His ministry with it, with the with the saving of Matthew the tax collector which everybody looks and goes, what is he doing as a disciple? And he ends his ministry with it. When he says to the thief on the cross today, you'll be with me in, in paradise. And people don't get it. The disciples don't get it. They, they only grasp human love. And you might not get it either. You might not understand God's love because you're looking at it through, through a human lens. I mean, the Pharisees grumble when Jesus, you may grumble at, expression of God's love in Scripture. You may chafe against it, just like the Pharisees do, because you're looking at it from a human standpoint. Jesus goes to the celebration feast after he calls Matthew, 
Levi made a great feast in his house, and there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at the table with them. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? I mean, why do you love them? And the Lord Jesus answers in verse 31. Jesus answered and said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. I mean, he's saying, I'm not denying that they're sinners or even enemies. But your failure is you expect me to have your kind of love, and I came to express divine love. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to to actually save sinners. And Nicodemus had the same issue in John chapter 3. He's the teacher of Israel. He doesn't even understand a lot of things, but the love of God is taught to him in John 3, where we get John 3.16. Jesus corrects his view of himself, and he corrects his view of, of, of love. You must be born of, of the Spirit, and the reason that God would do that for you is, is because of, of divine love. And he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And whoever, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And here it is. Here's the explanation of why it's by believing, by faith alone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Why did he do that? For God didn't send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. It was an expression of divine love. The world was a... Was, a, was the irreligious Gentile masses that opposed the God of Israel. That's what, that's what Nicodemus heard. I mean, to the Jew, the world was not deserving of God's love. I mean, because God's love is earned. It, it, it's merited. Or at least you have to be trying for it. I mean, I mean yeah, God grades on a curve. We all, we're not perfect. But I mean, at least you've got to be striving. That was the concept of Jewish love. It was attractional love. God says it's not. God loves the world. God God loves irreligious Gentile masses that oppose me. The story of the rich young ruler to explain the same truth. I mean, how hard it is for a religious and righteous man that bases his life on, on human love, the concept of human love, thinking God loves that way, trusting in his worth to grasp God's love. And, and the disciples say when he walks away, it's impossible for him to be saved. And Jesus says, but not with God. Because God has a different kind of love. And His love makes it possible. Or the adulteress in John 8. He is without sin cast the first stone. Written to reinforce God's love is different. Probably the, the pinnacle would be the parables of the lost son, the lost coin, and the lost sheep. All written to teach us about the love of God. I mean, the parables build in intensity and they're written to expose your faulty view of divine love and my faulty view of divine love. That's why it's there. The evil son, after rejecting his father and being insolent and demanding his inheritance, even saying to his father, you're dead to me, which is what it meant to ask for your inheritance. He removes himself from the family. I'm no longer part of of the family, going, he goes the wrong way, doing exactly what his father told him not to do, wasting his father's hard-earned money, ruining his own life, bearing the consequences of that. You know the parable. How should the father respond to this son when he lies in his own pigsty, literally, and returns, based on human love? How should the father respond? 
he should make his make him earn his way back into the family. I mean, at least pay restitution. I mean, he is coming back and saying he's sorry, so we've got to show him some kind of, of, of acceptance. But how does the father in the parable respond? Jesus says it's with divine love, a different kind of love. He arose and came to his father, and while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and before you I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Don't let the familiarity of this passage deaden what Christ is trying to teach here about divine, divine love. The father who represents God here, says, The father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his, on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And, and they began to celebrate. And when you are that lost son in, in your life in that parable, it brings tears to your eyes because you've never experienced love like that before. You've never, you never tasted divine love. That's not how you expect God to, to respond to you. You know that you have sinned. And if you're on the other side of the fence and you're not the lost son here, you're the, you're the elder son and you, you're basing things on human love, you, you don't understand this. You think, why would he respond that way? What's the point of belaboring all those details in, in Luke? It, it's, this is not a man who deserves love. Not based on the worthiness of the scales. This is a man who deserves a punishment in terms of human love. But the father loves his wicked son and lavishes not only forgiveness on him, but sacrificial love. And this is something that the older brother who was like the Pharisee listening did, could not comprehend because this kind of love does not make sense from a human standpoint. And we see that and we, we, we say to ourselves, I mean, what kind of love is this? I mean, I mean, is it possible that the creator of the universe actually loves this way? And the answer is, this is a love that has no human equal. It's a love that I cannot comprehend without the Bible and the help of the Holy Spirit. And it's so inexplicable to us that, that God has to offer proof. We must have it demonstrated to us before we can comprehend it, which is the the third description here. It's expressed toward the undeserving in verse 6. It's extraordinarily unlike human love in verse 7. And it's emphatically demonstrated by the, by the cross. Look if you would at verse 8. Here's the third description. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He says that the cross was demonstrative proof of God's love. And it was given to active sinners in that while we were yet sinners. And it's a glorious manifestation of God's love. Christ died for us. I mean, verse 8 is in contrast to the point that Paul just made about the way human beings love in, express their love and dare die. I mean, notice it's a contrast. But for is an explanation, but is a, is a contrast. I mean, but God, he, he says. I mean, there are no two greater words in the Bible, are there? 
I mean, Ephesians 2, 1, And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, and whence you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now working, and the sons of disobedience, and on and on, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. It's a gracious love. And Paul says here, but God's love is emphatically different from the love that you just heard described in verse 7. And it's demonstrated, it's proven by the death of Christ. I mean, the words His own are emphatic. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in contrast to this human love. It's His own love. His own love contrasted to human love in verse 7. God's love is different because it's demonstrated in his death for sinners. I mean, remember back in verse 6, God's love was demonstrated by the people that he died for. And it's now demonstrated by the death itself in verse 8. I mean, Paul says the death of Christ is proof of the fact. I mean, did you ever think of that? I mean, did you ever think that in our fallen state, we had no way to grasp divine love? I mean, the, the highest forms of human love don't take us to the mountaintop. They, they, don't, they don't give us the concept that we must have to understand God's love. Our highest forms are insufficient. They're all attractional and caused-based. So we don't have any ability to grasp it. And so knowing this, God had to come to us and demonstrate His divine love to us by dying on the cross for sinners. There are other reasons that it was by the cross, but this says one of the reasons is to demonstrate his love. And the death of Christ is a proof of God's love. I mean, if you ever doubt God's love because you're looking at yourself, look at the cross. It's a demonstration because the objects of, of that love were, were still rebelling against him. It's while we were yet sinners, still rebelling when he did it. Paul's already said, I don't know if you remember this or not, but I'll bring it back to your attention. What, look at how he brings these two demonstrations together. I mean, he's already said that Christ's death demonstrates God's justice. Chapter 3, verses 25 through 26. Remember the, the gospel passage in chapter 3? Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness. So there's the, the demonstration of God's righteousness. What does that mean? Because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. And the result of that was so that He would be just. That God would be seen in the, in the cross, in the death of Christ, as a just God. And He would also be the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. I mean, Christ died to demonstrate God's righteousness. His death was so that God might be, might be seen as just. It demonstrates that God hates sin, that God punishes sin, that that sin is, is worthy of death, and justice had to be served. But now in chapter 5, Paul says that, that the death of Christ also demonstrates something else. It demonstrates God's love by dying for sinners. So I mean, the, there, there's the sword in one hand, demonstrating the justice of God, and then that, that sword plunged into the Lord's own heart 
for sinners out of love. The word to prove or demonstrate is in the present tense in chapter 5. So Cranfield says it's noteworthy. The, the cross is an event that happened in the past, but the fact that it occurred remains a present proof of God's love. I mean, the cross was an event. It, it took place at a, at a particular time. Christ died at, a, at the perfect time, at God's appointed time. It happened. It's an event. It's a fact. It's news, and it's good news. But here Paul says the fact that it happened in the past, it, it's a present reminder of the proof of God's love. Even today, you look back to it, it's a demonstration or proof of, of God's love. And it was his death that proves this. Verse 8, But God demonstrates his own love toward us, us already defined as weak and sinners and ungodly and enemies, what is, how does it demonstrate it, Paul? In that, while we were yet sinners, while we were in this condition, Christ died for us. God doesn't save us by the life of Christ. It's involved. He kept, kept the law perfectly. He did what you were unable to do. So he acted as your righteous substitute. He earned the righteousness, proved that he was righteous, did what Adam failed to do. But God doesn't save us by the life of Christ uh, or by the teachings of Christ. The teachings of Christ are, are, are what we, we, we live on, not by bread alone, but, but by, by His teachings. But God saves us by the death of Christ. You've heard the phrase, God helps those who help themselves. I remember um, when I was first saved, within a year, having a Christian actually quote that phrase to me. I was driving down the road. I can still picture it in my mind. And there was a young lady who was with me, a friend of mine and Tracy's. We're driving down the road, and I don't have my seatbelt on. And she says, you need to put your seatbelt on. And I said, you know, why? If I die, I'm going to heaven. You know, just kind of tongue-in-cheek. And she looked at me and said, yeah, but God helps those who help themselves. I mean, you put your seatbelt on, do what, you're, what you know to do. Of course, there's some truth in the in the, the sense of, you don't know, just jump out in front of a bus and say God's sovereign. But that, that phrase, God helps those who help themselves, do you know where that comes from? It's not the Bible. It comes from Benjamin Franklin's almanac, poor Richard's almanac. Of course, Benjamin Franklin was a, was a great patriot, he, and he understood human love, but he didn't understand divine love from that statement. The Bible states something entirely different. It states that God's loves, God loves those who are beyond help, those who can't help themselves. And God can't even help them in their current condition. He, he, he brings them to an end of themselves. There's a spiritual death, and then He raises them to new life as a substitute for them. He must wholly change us, and He does that because of His love, which is what Paul is teaching us here the difference between divine love and, and human love. And now after going through Romans 5 and this description of God's love, with that fresh in your mind, you, you can understand Peter's response to Jesus in John 21 when the Lord asked him, Peter, do you love me? Peter, do you agape me? Peter, do you have divine love for me? And Peter responds, Lord, you know I phileo you. I have human love for you. 
Three times Jesus asks him and three times Peter responds the same way. Peter, do you have divine love for me? And Peter says, Lord, I have human love for you. Through his bold declaration a few chapters earlier about the strength of his own love, Peter Peter says, oh, everyone will forsake you. I will not. I will die for you because you're a righteous man. You're a good man. You're you're greater than a righteous or good man. You're the Messiah. I will die for the Messiah. What was he saying? I have the highest of, of love for you, higher than all of these other human beings here. But it wasn't the love of God yet. And when the time came to do that, Peter wasn't even able to muster that kind of human love. And he denied the Lord three times, in fact, and being humbled by that, he now sits by a fire again, realizing he doesn't have the ability to love like God loves. And Christ stands before him and says, Peter, do you understand divine love now? That's what he's saying. And then he says, here is divine love, Peter. Feed my sheep. You're forgiven. Go serve me now. Now Peter can rightly only confess a human level of love in the face of divine love. And you might be here this morning having having sin or even fallen, wondering whether you love God. If Jesus asked you the question, do you love me? Do you really love me? I mean, in your humility, you would have to say, Lord, the best that I can muster is human love, phileo. And even that's weak. But I don't have your love. And that's the right answer. Or you may even wonder even more importantly here this morning, given as much wrong as I, as I have done, does God love me? And God shouts from these verses, don't ever wonder whether I love you. My love for you is not like your love for me. Because my love is based on me, not you. It's expressed even for my enemies. And I'm demonstrated on the cross. Look there. Don't look at your feelings or what you've done or your sin. Look at the cross and what happened on the cross. And whenever you understand that love, it's that love that then moves me and moves you to lay down my life for the Lord every day. And now you know what Jesus means when he says, if you love me, keep my commandments. If your love is in response to divine love because you grasp divine love to the point you respond to me in love, then of course you'll do what I say. That passage is not about the law or doing right. It's in the face of this kind of love. What else could I do? I mean, of course I'll do what pleases you. I mean, it's my joy to serve a being who loves me that kind of way. And so Jesus says to Peter, feed my sheep, tend my lambs. Christian, it's not about your love for God. It's about His love for you. So... Go and live in that love. Give your life away for that love. And then whenever you're done, go home and enjoy that love forever and ever and ever and ever. William Reese wrote a song, Here is Love. And he summarizes it this way. 
Here is love, vast as the ocean, loving kindness as a flood, when the prince of life, our ransom, shed for us his precious blood. Who his love will not remember, who can cease to sing his praise? He can never be forgotten throughout heaven's eternal days. On the mount of crucifixion, fountains opened deep and wide. Through the floodgates of God's mercy flowed a vast and gracious tide. Grace and love, like mighty rivers, poured incessant from above, and heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. And that love kissed me one day through Jesus Christ, and you as well if you know Him. And if you don't, you can today if you'll repent and believe. Let's pray. Oh, Father, what love. A love that's inexplicable, a love that's impossible for us to grasp apart from your truth and the illumination of the Holy Spirit. I pray, Lord, as your truth has been laid out before us this morning, that the Spirit of God would ignite it. Maybe even this morning, someone outside of the love of God, outside of the love of Christ, would see today what you have done for them and they would bow the knee and come to Christ maybe today a believer who understands your love to an even greater degree that they would give their life away for you maybe a believer who wonders and questions and doubts would look to the cross and say you do love me Lord we ask all this and give you praise in Jesus name Amen